This morning's scripture is Romans chapter 9, verses 14 through 18. Hear the word of God. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So that it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he, and he hardens whomever he wills. Amen. So as we've mentioned, you know, again, these uh, texts are pretty serious. This, uh, all of God's word, obviously, is inspired by God and is profitable for all of our learning and living in righteousness. Um, but as we said, chapter 9 of Romans is a particularly uh, heavy text, and it deals with a pretty heavy attribute of God, and, and therefore it is a weighty thing. And I, 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 I thank you for your prayers, as many of you tell me that you're praying for me, and uh, I thank you for those because we take seriously the exposition of God's Word, the interpretation of God's Word. These things are vital, especially with this doctrine. And I just want to mention as we've talked about the doctrine of election now, and we'll continue even in, in the next few passages. Um, this is not just some, some arbitrary doctrine to be bantered about and decided to take or leave. This, this doctrine reveals the very integrity and character of who God is. That's why it's so important that we actually see it, because we saw Paul say that Everything he does in the affairs of nations, in the world, in the universe, is according to his election, and that his purpose of election would stand. And so it's vital that we understand what God's word says about these things, and we need God's grace in order to do it, because this one doctrine of all stands and flies in the face of our proud, arrogant hearts, and we have to say we don't understand but we love you, Lord, and will you teach us and give us grace? And so I want us to pray again before I open the text this morning. Uh, Father, we're going to preach your word, and we pray that your spirit prepare our hearts. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So the question, and, and again, you've, you, if you've been around children for any length of time, you will have heard those familiar words when something doesn't appear to go their way, it's not fair, right? That's not fair, and it just, it just resounds. And it's not just children. As we grow, we, we, we retain those words, and we use them as adults uh, on many occasions as well. It's just not fair. I, I, it seems unfair. And Paul anticipates that his audience will utter the same words. After last week's message and uh, that text, uh, Paul is already anticipating uh, that the question will be... It, is God fair? And, and let's notice it. Verse 14, this is exactly where we begin today. Paul says, what shall we say then concerning the election of God, concerning his sovereignty? What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Is that your question? Is there injustice with God? Is he unfair? Is he unjust? Now, it's important to note that, that the fact that they are going to ask this question they're going to they're ask, is God being fair? It actually establishes and clarifies what Paul meant by election. 
uh, again, there's many views again on election. Many people try to explain it away in some ways or to soften what it may be saying. But it's very interesting. This very question today establishes and confirms what Paul meant. Paul knew what he meant. The people knew what he meant. And I want to make sure that we knew what he meant today. And so let's think about verses 11, 12, and 13 last week. What did Paul say? He basically said that there were twin boys that were going to be born. They were in the mother's womb, Rebecca, and Jacob and Esau were there. And before they could do anything, while they were yet in the womb, before they could do anything, good or bad, Rebecca was told, the older will serve the younger. And then he went on to say, Jacob, I loved, Esau, I hated. So again, very heavy words there. And why is this question then today so important? Why is it so vital? Is God fair? Based on what Paul said last week. Why is that so significant? Well, because this again establishes that when Paul mentioned election, he was not thinking about this concept of, of, of many that says God looked ahead in time and he saw that, that one of those boys, Jacob, would receive him and would honor him and live for him, so God chose him. And then he saw that Esau would reject him and be wicked, so God passed over him. That is not what Paul was saying. How do we know? Because that is perfectly fair. That would be fair. Nobody would have a problem with that. Oh, if God's making his choice based on the fact that they didn't choose him, that they rejected him, well, that's fair. And the other guy, he got what he wanted. He didn't want God. He rejected God, so God rejected him. Oh, that's fair. No problem. But the very fact that they have to question, and Paul knows they're going to question, is God unjust? He's unfair. Why would they say that? Because they know what Paul meant. They knew what the scripture said. God made a choice before they could do good or bad. It wasn't based on what they did. It was based solely on God's will and good pleasure. Again, it's not arbitrary. That's the argument that comes. Well, that sounds arbitrary, that God just blindly looked and grabbed a few people here and there with no rhyme or reason. That is not true. Paul said that he has a purpose in his election, and that purpose will stand. The thing that drives us nuts is that that purpose does not reside in us. It resides in God. So as we, as we see here, this is very vital then, right? We think, wow, that's just unfair that God would choose one, favor one, and not the other. We think, again, fair means everybody equal. Everybody gets the same stuff, right? In general, uh, you know, the idea, in the general sense, the idea of liberty and justice for all is good as we are dealing with human beings, as we all live together as equal sinners, all of us equally um, have the ability to hurt each other, to sin against each other. We are sinners. We're fallen. We're not perfect. We need laws that cover all of us, that we're all under. Just laws that are fair across the board. No one is above those laws. As humans, that is a good thing. And we should desire fairness and justice when dealing with other humans. But when it comes to dealing with God and Him dealing with us, we should not want fairness and justice. We should not 
We should not want that. And fortunately, folks, listen, fortunately for us, these verses today show us that when it comes to salvation and God dealing with us, he does not deal with us according to fairness and justice. He deals with us according to grace and mercy. And that is glorious. And that's my prayer that we will grab on to that this morning and see the beauty of that as created things made for the glory of God. So notice, notice, notice uh, verse 14 as Paul answers this hypothetical question that he knows would be on the hearts of the people because he knows what he said. Sounds so harsh. He knows that. That's why he says, are you, questioning, are you going to question and say, is God unfair? Is he unjust? And he answers the question. Look what verse 14 says. By what, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? His answer, by no means. By no means. In the Greek, that literally means it could never be. It can never be. And why is that? Well, one reason it could never be is by ver ver the virtue of who God is. <laughs> God is holy, righteous, and just. It is God. That is who he is. So to accuse him of being unjust is basically blasphemy. It's ludicrous. And that's what Paul's saying by that answer. Are we saying that God is unfair, that God is unjust? That's ludicrous. It could never be. Based on the very nature of who God is. He is justice. He is holiness. He is righteous. He is perfect. Psalm 1830 says, As for God, His way is perfect. The Lord's word is flawless. No human being can begin to enter into that company. All of our ways being perfect and our words flawless? No, but that's God. That's God. And what Paul is saying here is that's the, that's the God you're accusing of being unjust. Hey, his ways are perfect. His words are flawless. Psalm 145, 17 the Lord is righteous in all his ways. Ah, that's who he is. And again, the only way that we know that, folks, is by his special revelation, his word that tells us. And the reason our world has no clue of who God is is they're not hearing the word of God preached and proclaimed. They're not reading it. They're looking to their own hearts and to other people to determine who and what God is. And they're creating their own gods, which has been the, the way it has been since the very beginning in this world. We create our own gods and we begin to question the God and we begin to belittle him and we begin to bring him down to a level that's more human than divine. We fail to see our inadequacies and we instead put those on God somehow. John Calvin said this, Monstrous surely is the madness of the human mind that it is more disposed to charge God with unrighteousness than to blame itself for blindness. Now how we need this, folks. 
We need this truth that Paul is talking about. Our minds are mad, folks. Sin has polluted us and corrupted us, and our minds are mad if we will accuse God of injustice and not see the very flaw of our own blindness. But the world is quick, aren't they, to accuse God and to excuse their sin, to ignore his holiness, ignore his righteousness, ignore his commands, and just live for themselves as their own God. Which leads us to the second reason Paul says, this, this is impossible. Is God unjust? It could never be. Not only because that's who he is, he is justice and righteousness and holiness, but the second reason is that God is the one who has been wronged in this scenario. God is the one who has been wronged. We have sinned against his holiness thousands of times, and we do it a thousand times a day. Every human offends the perfect, flawless righteousness of a holy God just by breathing. That's how unholy we are. That's how skewed we are as human beings about who we are. We've lifted ourselves up on the throne of divine. And we can determine, we think, what we want and who we want to be and recreate ourselves in our image in its blasphemous in the nostrils of the holy God of heaven. That sounds angry. And folks, I am putting myself right there. I'm not trying to call out any particular group at this point. I'm not trying to say this sin's worse than that sin. I'm talking about the most righteous human being on earth. Stinks in the nostrils of the holy God that we ignore daily. And then we have the audacity to say, you're not fair. Folks, he is the flawless, perfect creator, and we have wronged him. He is not wronging us. We have no right to accuse God of being unjust simply because he chooses to show favor to some and not to others. Think about this. God created this glorious world full of wonder. And, and he provided all things necessary for that life to thrive. And then he created human beings and placed them in the midst of that paradise. And he gave them one command and they broke it as we all have been doing every day since, since that time. Therefore, all of us have turned away from God. All of us continue to turn away from Him. This is what Isaiah 53, 6 says. It says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We, we've turned, every one of us, to his own way. Folks, that verse right there, if you could write that down and put it somewhere, that is the definition of sin. I know we talk about sin and a big list appears in our brains and we start seeing all kinds of things that people do that are, that are wicked or, sin, or wrong or hurtful. And we call that sin. Folks, this is sin. This is where all those things come from. This very point where humans turn away from God and rebel against him in their hearts and set themselves up as God. And we are self-serving. And all of those things we do are symptoms of a heart that will not bow the knee to God. Arrogance, proud, we turn away 
because we know better. We will not submit to God. We will go our way. All of us have done that, the Bible says. All. Romans 3, we've already seen it. Romans 3, 11 through 12, very plainly. It says, none is righteous. None. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together, they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. This is God's word to us. This is hard, I understand, but this is God's word. The fact is, we have no right to accuse God of being unfair in the way he chooses to show favor because God doesn't owe any of us favor in the first place. I'm going to say it again. We have no excuse to blame God for being unfair for the way he chooses to show favor because he doesn't owe any of us favor in the first place. Do you know what he owes us if he's fair? We should all be in hell, in hell right now. Fair and squarely. That's fairness. If God's going to be fair and give justice across the board, if that's what we want, then fair justice across the board for all humanity is eternal damnation for offending an eternal God. That's it. And, 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 and therefore, Paul answers their question, is God unfair? Not by trying to argue all these little points. He simply answers their question by pointing out the basis on which God deals savingly with sinners. And that way is mercy. He points out the mercy of God. That's how he answers the question. Is God unjust? Paul answers basically, no, he's merciful. <laughs> he is not unjust, but he's merciful. He is merciful. If God was fair, as I said, we'd all be where we deserve. What does the Bible say? All have sinned. We just saw it. All have sinned and fall short of God's perfection. That's the condemnation of all human beings. What else does it say? The wages of that sin is death. That's the pronouncement from the God of the universe, and that's where we all stand, condemned. That's it. That's, that's fair. We broke his law. We break it every day. We sin against him, and he, being the just, holy God of the universe, has every right to carry out sentence on us. We've sinned, and the wages for that sin is death. That's fair. That's right. That's just. And yet, God chooses to show mercy to some. And that is his prerogative as the sovereign of the universe. And to such grace and mercy. Look at Romans 9, 15 through 16, as Paul brings this point out. He's going to use two people. He's going to use Moses and he's going to use Pharaoh. Look what he says about uh, what God said to Moses. He, it says, for he, God, says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. What does that mean for us? Well, that means it does not depend. It depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. The receiving of mercy from God does not depend on anything we do. This is Paul's point, all the way back with those twins, right? They weren't even born yet. They couldn't do anything good or bad. One of them receiving mercy is totally God's doing in mercy, not their work or earning it. 
Notice this. This is glorious. Because this passage, the context of this passage, Paul is quoting here from Exodus chapter 33. What's going on there? Moses is, is actually been praying to God to spare the people. Why? What happens in chapter 32? Here, this looks glorious, right? God says, I'll have mercy. I'll show mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll show compassion on whom I show compassion. That's amazing. Why is that amazing? Because of chapter 32. You see, God had just given his commands to his people. He's taken them. He's led them out of captivity for one thing. And he's brought them to Mount Zion. And now he's revealed his holiness to them through his law. And he says, you're my people. I'm your God. And just abide with me and obey my commands. And and, and I will bless you. And it will be glorious. And so what do the people do while, while Moses is up on the mountain finishing up his time with the Lord? Well, the people, they make a golden calf. And all of Israel bows down and worships it as their God. They commit adultery right there. The whole nation. What a microcosm of the whole Bible when it deals with all of humanity. It's just a little snapshot of all humanity. Israel represents all of us at this moment. God promises blessing and favor. And he shows us his holiness and says, there, keep this and, I will, and, and, and it will be wonderful. And what do they do? They rebel. <laughs> and they commit adultery and they worship some golden calf. And in chapter 33, God is ready to destroy them, rightfully so. He's showing this is the just reward for disobeying me, for sinning against me. I'm holy. And the just reaction to that is my wrath. And that's what's coming. And Moses is a picture of Christ here, intercedes, Lord, please remember your promise. Spare your people. Show mercy. Show us your glory, Moses says. And so God says, nobody could see me or you would be obliterated. So I'll stick you into a cleft of the mountain and hide you from me and and my backside will pass and you'll get a glimpse of my glory. But here's the glorious thing about that text. This verse right here. This is God's glory. What? The fact that I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy and compassion on whom I will show compassion. That's amazing. This is glorious. Notice, notice what it means. It rips all pride from us because we have nothing to do with it. We have nothing to do with that mercy and grace. It's not dependent on exertion. That's effort or will, desire, my desire to be blessed by God. It doesn't matter how much... I try to will it up. I can't make myself right in the sight of God. He has to bestow that upon me. That's why Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says this, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Amen. (laughs) Amen from the mouth of babes. This is what God says. This is what the Bible says. Look what it goes on to say. It's the gift of God, not of works. It's not a result of your works. Why? So that no one may brag. No one can boast. No one can take credit for themselves. God gets all the glory. 
which is the reason he created all of us in the first place, that we would glorify him. So these verses, basically, we get so bent out of shape about them because they remind us that it's not about us. It's about him. And yet, he has every right to condemn us. He'd be totally just to send every man, woman, boy, and girl that ever lived, all billions of them, to hell. He would be right. That's what we have to grab onto, folks. We must grab that because that is what makes the fact that he shows mercy to any of us amazing. And that's Paul's point. He doesn't owe you anything. How could you say he's unfair? You're getting exactly what you deserve. The very fact that he chooses to show show mercy, that's him. That's up to him. And that is a glorious, amazing thing. And that humbles us and we worship him and he gets all the glory. That's what this does. But look, we're not finished yet. Phew. I, along with you, will be glad when this is over. Because it goes on to tell us that not only does God show mercy whom he will show mercy and have compassion on whom he will have compassion, it says he will also harden who he will harden. Paul goes seemingly out of his way to make his point. I don't know how anyone theologically can do the gymnastics they do to get around the fact that God's election is a sovereign choice, totally dependent upon his will and pleasure, and has absolutely nothing to do with what we have done or will ever do. But he goes on to say, in verses 17 through 18, notice it. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, and basically by scriptures, Paul is saying God, because the scriptures are God's voice to us. This is God's word. So, so Paul saying, God tells Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. It's huge. Exodus chapter 9, verse 16 is what this comes from. Paul is quoting directly from that. So I I think that's glorious because it's not as though the New Testament apostles looked back and tried to do some eisegesis on the text back there and try to read in some kind of modern theological idea like okay here's what uh, exodus 9 really meant uh, and we're going to say you know god god raised up pharaoh for his glory no god himself said that <laughs> already way back at the time it was all happening in exodus chapter 9 verse 16 god says to pharaoh for this very purpose i've raised you up i've put you on the stage i did that but you're on the stage for my glory This is the God we're talking about. This is the sovereign God with whom we all have to deal. A God who knew when he sent the first plague on Egypt, he knew he would send the tenth. There was no question in God's mind. Why? Because that's the reason he hardened Pharaoh's heart. For his glory to be displayed as he poured out plague after plague after plague after plague to show his mighty power because he's God and then he goes on in that in 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 verse 18 so then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills Paul just sums it all up he says basically what we're saying in all that we've said so far 
is that God shows mercy on whom he will show mercy and he hardens whom he will harden. And he'll go on to say in, in, in a few weeks here, basically, and you, O oh man, have nothing to say about it because he's God. You are the created thing. He is the holy God creator who you offended. And therefore, the fact that he shows mercy at all is amazing. The fact that anybody is saved at all is amazing, and God deserves all the glory and praise. And when anybody goes to hell, here's what we're going to see. When anybody goes to hell, they go to hell fully of their own accord. God did not send them there. They were already going there. We are all already on our way to hell from our mother's wombs. Because in Adam, we all sinned, Paul said. And in Adam, we all died. But by God's mercy revealed to those whom he reveals it, as Jesus said, you only know this because my Father revealed, but, but, but the mercy shown to those whom he reveals is this, that in Christ, you're made alive. In Adam, you die, but my mercy comes through Christ. And all those who believe are made alive. That's grace. That's mercy we don't deserve. Oh, I love it. Stay tuned. Here's what I'm saying, folks. Stay tuned over the next few weeks. We have to because we're going to not work. I'm taking my time through this because you're, ha you're having questions like, well, that just doesn't seem right either. Oh, Paul's going to deal with all of this. But here, just in summation, none of this is saying that God is hindering somebody from coming to him. It's not saying that at all. We're going to see in the next chapters, all those who come to me, I will in no wise cast out. That's the Bible. It's all true, remember? The part that we get as little humans and God's side of things that we don't get, but it's still true. And think about this. As we look at this hardening of the hearts, and this is a hard one for us to say, wow, that means God's just hard, what? And, he, and he shows mercy, what? Multiple times in the book of, of Exodus, it tells us that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Multiple times. It's not just a one-off one and somebody, oh, that's, that, that God was having a bad day. <laughs> It's multiple times that God tells us, I hardened Pharaoh's heart. However, before that, we see that Pharaoh had already hardened his heart toward God. Pharaoh had, a, had hatched this plan to commit infanticide and, and murder who knows how many Jewish children to hold on to his control and to keep those Hebrew slaves and to rule with an iron thumb and to turn his whole being against the righteousness of a holy God. And many times we see verses that say Pharaoh hardened his heart against God, such as Exodus chapter 10, verse 20, where it says, but the, well, this is the one showing us about uh, God hardening his heart, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not let the people of Israel go. That's, again, over and over repeated. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. He did not let the people go. But again, before that, we see Pharaoh hardened his heart against God and would not let the people go. Now, how does that work? I like what Tim Keller says regarding this. When God hardens someone, he doesn't create the hardness. He simply allows the person to go his or her own way. Yes, God hardens those he wants to harden 
And all those whom he hardens want to be hardened. That's profound, folks, but it's true. We may not see it, and it doesn't seem fair to us, it doesn't seem right. We say, surely they don't want to be hardened. No, they don't, but no, folks. And there will not be one person in hell that doesn't want to be there. You don't believe it. Well, the theologian Billy Joel tells us, I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. This is truly an undergirding thought in the hearts of people, if they're honest. Our first desire as fallen sinners is not to be with God, not to submit to him, not to be with saints and those who love the Lord and worship him. It's to party with my, my, my pals and my homies in hell. Many people say this. I mean, I'd rather, yeah, I'm going to be in hell partying with my buddies. Man, I don't want to go to no heaven. So God's going to say to some, okay, I simply give you what you want. That's how God hardens. Basically, the hardening of hearts by God never means that he stops someone from coming to him and believing in him. It's not as though people are dying to come to Jesus. And they're saying, Lord, I want to come. I want to come. I mean, look at the line out there. I can't even believe that there's a there's a hundred thousand people out that door right now. And we've got it locked. Because you're nope, you're not coming in. No. I'm gonna quit playing with this. I don't care. My sleeve's messed up. Sheesh. It is not the case that people are knocking down the doors to come to God. They're not. So he's not stopping anybody. He goes on to say, all those, anyone who comes to me, I will receive you and I will never let you go. And that cry has been going out for centuries to the world through missionaries and faithful Christians just like you with your family and friends, gospel tracts placed throughout this world, people having the opportunity to hear about this amazing truth of the God who made them and who they have sinned against and the God who is totally just in sending them to hell offers them mercy through Christ and he will turn nobody away and yet they will not come unto him that they might have life, Jesus says. Three times in Romans chapter 1, we saw this. Three times in Romans chapter 1, we see the phrase, God gave them up. God gave them up to their vile affections. God gave them up to their natural minds. God gave them up. Sad words, obviously. And yet that is what it means. When God hardens a heart, he simply says, go ahead. Basically, it's this. If, if this helps us to understand this idea. When it says God hardens someone's heart, it simply means that God doesn't intervene with their heart. He doesn't step in. Because, folks, here's the truth. If he didn't step in to our heart, we wouldn't be sitting here right now. If he didn't intervene by his grace and his Holy Spirit and the gospel, none of us would be sitting here either. So in conclusion, Paul's point is for us to realize that none of us can accuse God of being unfair by saving some and not others, or even all, some would argue, because the truth is none of us deserve to be saved in the first place. So how can we argue that he should save all? We've already covered this. The fair thing is to send us all to hell, not to save us all. We've offended him, and he's totally just. And yet, God, as the creator, now get this, 
Get this. God, as the creator and owner of the universe and all that is in it. That's another thing we just got to go. Once you, the thing is this, folks. If by his grace we as humans can grab this concept, it, 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 all the dominoes fall. <laughs> they just fall. If we get the point that he is the sovereign creator and owner and ruler of this universe and of me, life goes a whole lot simpler, folks. It's glorious. That owner can decide to show mercy on whomever he wishes and decide not to because he's the owner and creator, the one who gave us life and holds our very breath in his hand. I want to end real quick with a, with a, with a story um, that Jesus tells us to make this point. All of this, folks, is done to point us to Christ and to point us to the Father and to point us to the Spirit, our triune God who, who in his magnificence is worthy of all praise, but also we see his mercy and grace that's available. So I want, that's what this purpose is for. So let's notice what Jesus says in Matthew 21 through 15 as he shows us this concept. That God shows mercy to whom he shows mercy and has compassion on whoever he wants. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of the house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. Goes out, he needs a lot of work done. He goes out, all the guys are, and this is true in many cultures, a lot of guys every day that want to work, they go to a certain place in the city, they know that there's guys who may need hired hands, they'll drive by and say, hey, I need five guys, come on, okay, let's go. That's what's going on here. So they're all out there waiting to work. This guy says, go out there to his, to his helpers. He, he sent them to the, to, to, to the city square and says, agree with these guys to work for Daenerys. That was the agreement. Who wants to come work my field? I'll give you a, a Daenerys for the whole day's labor. Oh, yes, we agree. That's great. Okay. And he sent them into his vineyard, and they worked. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace, and to them he said, you go into my vineyard too. And whatever is right, I will give you. What are you going to pay us? Oh, I'll, be, I'll be right. I'll pay you. Okay, we need a job. We're going. And then, so they went, it says. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said, you go into my vineyard too. And when evening came, so here it is, all day long, you get the concept. He starts in the first hour of the day, early morning, hires some people and says, I'll pay you denarii for the whole day's work. That's great. Must have been a fair thing. They all agreed. Yeah, that's great. Then he goes out throughout the day, right? So these guys are working the whole, uh, uh, whatever, eight, nine, ten hours, whatever it's going to be, right? They're working the whole 11 hours of the day. And as time goes by, some guys are going to work just one hour even, it, it finally comes up. So they're not working the same. Here's what all comes to a head. They said to him, okay, okay, okay. And, and, and when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last, the last ones to arrive, up to the first. And so when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. 
Woo! Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. Obviously, right? They, they were there all day, and that's what they agreed, right? A Daenerys for the whole day. But this guy, these guys that came at the 11th hour, only worked an hour, and they got a Daenerys. We're really going to clean up. So when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them received also a Daenerys. Well, that stinking landowner, what? What is that? That's not fair. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last worked only an hour. And you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. And again, from our human perspective, we see their point. Maybe, until we let reason come back and we remember, wait a minute, I don't think anything unfair has been done here, has it? Well, yeah, those guys worked uh, all day in the hot sun and these guys only worked an hour and so they should, wait a minute. And this is what the master says in verse one, or as we continue, look. But he replied to that accusation of being unfair. But he replied to one of them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a Daenerys? Did we not agree? Am I keeping my word? I'm doing exactly what we said. Take what belongs to you and go. And look what he says. I choose to give to the last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? This is the words of Jesus explaining to us through a parable everything Paul's saying. God is God. He's the owner. He's the king. Can he not do what he wants with what is his? And if he chooses to bless any of us, that's the amazing thing. That's the amazing thing. That should be our heart. The great mercy that God provides through Christ. Can you imagine this? I mean, what an awful, terrible God that Oh, he's, sending, he's sending people to hell that have cursed his name and sinned against him willingly and in their very heart of hearts, left to themselves, they will never choose him. They will never come. And yet in love, he elected some. Not based on anything they could ever do because they could never do anything good enough. It was purely his mercy. He elected some. And then he sent his son into this earth to redeem those elect. What do I mean? He lived in their place a perfect life so that they could have righteousness. It's a gift of God, not of works. Jesus lived their perfect life and then he went to the cross and took that wrath that God rightfully, justly could pour out on them. Those elect, Christ took it all. So God elected the people he crushed his son to pay for those people. He sent his Holy Spirit to convict and open the eyes of and draw those people that they would freely receive his grace and trust him and rejoice in him and give him all the glory. Thank you, Father, for your grace. This great mercy is provided to us, folks, because of what Christ did for us. And that's what communion shows us. And at this time, we're moving into that 
glorious thing that the church has done for 2,000 years. And again,